This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast podcast best bits from Friday, December the 8th. End of the week, uh, but still big focus on all things COP28 as we move into the final weekend of COP28. In fact, talking of COP, uh, we talked re-commerce or the circular economy when it comes to all things fashion with none other than Shalhoub Group, an organisation that is renowned for luxury retail uh, and the purveyor of luxury brands. But they are noticing a trend in the market at the moment of re-commerce, repurposing, uh, once loved, if you like, uh, a number of terms that you can use. But they are, and they've seen this trend develop, and therefore they've commissioned a survey on that. And the luxury re-commerce market in the Gulf region now expected to hit a value as high as seven hundred eighty million dollars by twenty twenty six. That's up nearly sixty percent compared to numbers last year. Lynn Alkhatib of Shalhoub Group was in studio to explain more. We were also joined a little earlier on by Mohammed bin Ghati, talking of all things luxury, from Shalhoub to Mercedes-Benz, as uh, Bengati Holding, the property developers here in Dubai, uh, announced yet another exclusive deal with another exclusive automotive brand. This time it was Mercedes-Benz with the launch of the first ever uh, residential tower to have the Mercedes-Benz logo affiliated to it. Uh, we talked to Mohammed, the chief executive officer, about the latest development, uh, what people can expect from it, but also uh, that wider conversation about branded real estate. We've seen branded residences, a lot of hotels putting their names to residences. But what about branded real estate and getting other brands involved? Is that a game changer? Is that something that attracts investors? Thomas Van He was in studio to give us a little bit of a Saudi Arabia focus as well. Saudi offering a 30-year tax relief for companies moving their headquarters to the kingdom. It's yet another carrot that's being dangled to try and attract more business into Saudi Arabia, the headquartering of businesses there in order uh, to drive business forward. Uh, Thomas is a tax expert. He was in studio. He's the founding partner of Orifa. Uh, he came in to explain a bit more about what this meant. And, of course, Alex Nichols, who's the head of Saudi expansion and community at Astrolabs. Uh, he extended and continued our Saudi focus, Saudi Arabia offering that uh, a tax relief for 30 years. Wanted to get Alex's take as to what that actually meant for businesses. Is that going to be a game changer for them? So big focus on all things Saudi Arabia. And those are just some of the best bits of uh, the business breakfast from Friday, December the 8th. Enjoy your bite size. Let's have a look at what has been one of the big headlines of the week to put it into context and see how big a deal it really is. Oh, my dad used to drive me to work to the kinks. Let's have a look at that offer from Saudi Arabia to waive tax for three decades for companies that has set up a regional HQ in the kingdom. Very pleased to be joined by Alex Nichols. He's the head of Saudi Arabian expansion and community at the setup specialists Astro Labs. He's been helping people to get their regional HQ licenses. Morning, Alex. Morning. Put this in context for us. 
How big a sweetener is this? So I think it's first of all important for everyone to know the difference between an RHQ and a commercial entity in Saudi Arabia. So as we discussed last time, these companies that are setting up their RHQs, the RHQs are purely there for RHQ activities, which is things like strategy, financial planning, business planning. The commercial entity which they have will be the one that is executing on specific projects, the government projects that we spoke about last time that uh, can only be bid on in 2024 if you have an RHQ. Now, this tax break, as they've mentioned uh, in the news recently, is for the RHQ company. We're yet to know whether that will affect the commercial company that is actually billing these uh, entities in Saudi Arabia on such projects. Right, which is the important thing here, because you hear 30-year zero tax, you think, excellent. Um, But how much tax would we be looking at as the service side, the HR side, the accounts department um, of a company anyway? As of right now, it's, it's still very much unknown. The, the way it's been announced is that the RHQ companies will have this tax break. If it is the commercial entity, then it would be huge for these 200 plus uh, licenses that have been issued uh, for regional headquarters. If it's purely for the RHQ company, then it's going to have less of an impact uh, to, those, to those businesses. What it has done, however, is definitely got the buzz and everyone talking again about Saudi Arabia and about this need for the RHQ, which I'm sure is part of the, the reason for the for the announcement. And we have got our tax specialist. We have got Mr. Numbers, Thomas uh, Van. He is coming in in about half an hour um, to deal with the accountancy side of things. Any questions? 4001048715500. But we wanted to talk to you about that buzz indeed. Where are we at the moment? You said around... 200 for the companies that have got the license. Yeah, so they've just hit their targets. Uh, they're now over 200 licenses, uh, RHQ licenses that is in, in Saudi Arabia. And definitely since this announcement, we've again seen a big influx and companies wanting to find out about RHQs. We have a, a webinar next week on Tuesday uh, where we've had already a couple of hundred registrations just in two days uh, specifically about this topic. So it's definitely hot on the, hot on the press at the moment. 200 to me doesn't sound like an awful lot. Oh, in that case, uh, yeah, they're definitely focusing on big multinational uh, companies and corporations. So uh, it isn't for everyone. You have to have uh, three branches around the world to be able to actually even qualify for this uh, for this license. Um, but yeah, it's definitely something that will just keep on growing, I'm sure. And that's an important point as well, because it's not everyone, because the, the deal is if you don't have a regional HQ, um, it, you're not going to be able to get business with the government and the government-related entities, right? Exactly. And what we've heard actually very recently uh, from a number of our clients and also from the likes of Aramco and PIF is that it's not even just the companies that are bidding for these projects. Uh, Yes, they need an RHQ license, but actually any company that's even subcontracted by these RHQs will at least need to have a commercial entity in Saudi Arabia. So that's very, very important that that even those companies that are doing any type of business in Saudi Arabia, even remotely uh, related to the government, should honestly think about now looking at setting up that commercial entity in KSA. What does it mean, though, for UAE firms, the majority of whom will not hit those RHQ requirements. They will not have three branches around the world and may not be of that size. Those ones, if they're bidding directly with the government contracts, they would need to, uh, in theory, qualify for the RHQ. If they can't qualify, then again, they're a bit of a grey area, but 
in theory, they are still able to bid on those on those projects. They would still need to have their commercial company set up in Saudi Arabia. Because we're less than a month from that deadline, aren't we? Yeah, the deadline's coming around very, very quickly. That's why I think, again, these press releases come out uh, around this time, just to really put it on the top of everyone's uh, radar that you do need to take Saudi Arabia seriously if you're doing business there, and you should definitely think about having that company in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. What are you expecting to see come the 1st of Jan? Uh, I'm expecting lots of people to be in panic stations and to start going, oh my word, I'm trying to win this project with the certain ministry and I'm not able to bid on it. Alex, please, can you help me set up tomorrow? <laughs> in which point I'll need to explain to them that actually it's a bit of a long-winded process to, to get set up. Yes, we will support you and get you set up as quickly as possible, but you should have thought about this three months ago. <laughs> Is that how long, how long it will take to get an RHQ licence? For an RHQ, it's a little bit quicker. It's usually less than, a, less than a month to get that set up. But for the commercial company to be set up with the bank account, with your general managers, a visa, a karma and everything that we offer at Astrolabs, uh, yes, you, you're looking at the kind of a 10 to uh, 12 week process for that. But come the 1st of Jan, does it mean that, it, say, any tender process that's going on at the moment, there'll be a chunk of companies that all of a sudden aren't valid? In, that's exactly what they've said, yeah. So they've come out uh, again, uh, as we spoke last time, that if you do not have their RHQ, you'll not only not be able to bid on new projects, but actually you'll also be in question for the current projects that you're working on as well. Uh, so, yeah, they need to take that very seriously. So you could be, I don't know, halfway through as a subcontractor on a building and then what that is waiting to be seen <laughs> talk to us what needs to be done though for those who are listening to this and thinking do you know what i might actually qualify as a regional hq what actually needs to be put in place to get this license so in what they need is to have their multiple branches around the world uh, and then at that point, they would just need to either speak to a specialist or speak to MISA, uh, the Ministry of Investment of Saudi Arabia, directly, uh, understand what process is needed, usual things, company documents, uh, audited financial statements of those entities, uh, and then relatively smooth process to get, uh, get set up. Less than one minute, though, but what does it mean in terms of commitment, money and people? So people-wise, it means that they need 15 uh, employees on the, on the ground. They need to have three C-level executives in that RHQ entity. Uh, and when it comes to uh, financials, no actual uh, uh, financials needed to, uh, to, make that, to, uh, to make that move. We're speaking this morning to Alex Nichols. He's the head of Saudi Arabian Expansion and Community at the Setup Specialists Astrolabs. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. We are talking tax on the Business Breakfast. Yeah, inevitable things in life, more so in this region as well. Um, or not, or maybe when it comes to Saudi Arabia. So they're offering a 30-year tax break of sorts for companies setting up a regional HQ in the kingdom. We've been speaking to a setup specialist this morning. We're now speaking to a legal tax expert. Thomas Vanhe is a founding partner of Orifa. Thank you very much for joining us, Thomas. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for having me, Brandy. So tell us, when we talk about a tax waiver, a tax break, 0% tax, what are we actually saying here? What is Saudi Arabia offering? Uh, 
So it sounds very exotic, like a tax holiday. Um, has nothing to do with beaches or, or anything. Uh, it just means that for an amount of time, uh, profits which are earned by a company, we will not be taxing them. Uh, we will ta- be taxing them at a 0% uh, rate. Does it mean you still need to keep the books? Yes, it does. Registration, keeping books, filing returns and whatnot. Um, this was essentially the carrot offered by uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, the stick being, if you don't establish your RHQ in Saudi Arabia, you may not be able to tender for government contracts anymore. as from the 1st of January 2024. Okay. Let's look at what this is, first of all, actually on. If you weren't getting this tax incentive, what kind of tax would you be paying? You'd be taxed at 20%. So normal regime, call it for lack of a better word, the mainland regime, it means 20% taxable on profits. But you're saying profits, and we're talking about regional HQs here. And this is the question we were asking with Alex of Astro Labs earlier. Do regional HQs actually generate that much in the way of profit? Well, we were just uh, chatting about this beforehand. And um, uh, this is a very interesting uh, question, actually, because when you look at this from a legal perspective, an RHQ isn't uh, supposed to develop a commercial activity. From a tax perspective, if you have a subsidiary in Saudi Arabia or any controlled entity, part of a larger group, uh, we cannot have that entity simply running losses. Yeah, From a transfer pricing point of view, when you have a larger group, we n- cannot have an entity which on an ongoing basis has losses. So necessarily, we need to take those expenses and we need to see who we can charge that to. And we need to necessarily charge that to other entities in, in the group. And this is a bit where there's an inherent contradiction between the licensing uh, part and then the tax part. And it's not solved by giving a 0% tax break because we still need to recharge those expenses. Okay, so if I was to set up a sneaker company in the kingdom, for example, I'm selling sneakers and I've set up a regional HQ because I'm big enough and I've got offices around the world. Mm -hmm. Am I getting the tax break just on my servicey offerings, if you like, in the headquarters, the company bit, or am I getting a tax break on the profits that I make from selling the sneakers? So it's a very good question. I think the first question probably to ask yourself is, do you want to sell sneakers to the government? Uh, because that's probably where the most use would be for the for the setup of the RHQ. Um, the 0% would only apply on the RHQ activities. Right? If you're making sneakers in the kingdom, or if you're whatever designing them, repackaging and whatnot, those are not RHQ activities. So it's only really... RHQ standing for regional headquarter. What does a headquarter do? It has a CEO, a CFO, a COO, a couple of C-suite people. You have back office, for example, what what drives the business really. And that's really what RHQ is, is made for. And that is essentially what Saudi Arabia is trying to attract. And I would say, reading between the lines a bit, maybe wants to pull away from other countries in the region. Okay, but it's not a tax break on all of your profits on everything you do. Correct. How does it work with other tax regimes? We've got double taxation treaties around the place. We've got that minimum global tax, Mm -hmm. you know, that the OECD and the the UN has been working on. What does this mean for how Saudi interacts with them? So this is an excellent question, uh, Brandy, because um, when you look at the RHQ regime, we'll be taxing profits of the RHQ at 0%. Under, for example, the global minimum tax, if you're a company in scope, which means that you're acting internationally, 
consolidated turnover in excess of 3.15 billion uh, dirhams uh, or 3.2 billion uh, rials, you would need to pay 15% per jurisdiction. So the tax break doesn't matter at that point. And that's probably a very important message for the very large corporates and who is attracted by the RHQ regime are the very large corporates. Uh, that's probably num number one. The second one is according to their own new income tax law, draft income tax law, I have to say, the RHQ regime is a tax haven regime. And Saudi Arabia is currently proposing to apply certain measures against what they call tax havens when they don't tax high enough. But their own regime will be a tax haven regime. So it's going to be interesting to see how other countries are going to view Saudi Arabia now that it's no longer a medium taxing country at 20%, but it'll have, it has the RHQ regime, it has four free zones, it has the integrated logistics bonded zone. So the dynamics of, call it tax competition, especially in the region, are going to become much more interesting. Well, it's unfortunate that we have to leave it there this morning, but thank you for running us through that. Thomas Van Hee is a legal tax expert, technically a lawyer, um, and founding partner of Orifa, speaking to us this morning about that 30-year tax break for the regional HQs of companies setting up an RHQ in the kingdom. We appreciate your time this morning. Thank you. Catch up on the business headlines with the Bite Size Business Breakfast. Let's talk re-commerce if we can, or more specifically, the luxury re-commerce market here in the Gulf region. Expected to hit a value as high as $780 million by 2026, up nearly 60% compared to last year. That's according to Shaloub Group's newly published circularity report. The circular fashion potential in the GCC uh, 2023 report is out. Tell us more about it. We're joined by the uh, Vice President of Communications at Shaloub Group, Lynn Al-Khatib, who joins us live here in studio. Good morning to you, Lynn. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for also the report. It makes for some fascinating reading at the moment, especially in light of COP28 ongoing and the big focus on all things sustainability. But I suppose, first and foremost, we need to do a little bit of definition, if we can, because a lot of people will think of re-commerce or reverse commerce, if you like, uh, as the, the selling of previously owned. They would have seen it with electric devices. They would have seen it in other industries as well. How do you sort of define re commerce when it comes to luxury fashion? Yes, I mean, for fashion, it's uh, across the full ecosystem. So there's multiple ways to define it, whether it's the material themselves and how they are reused after production, uh, how they are the, the full value chain of the ecosystem, um, and then life cycle and lifespan. So how much can we, uh, you know, May have give it a long life. So there's multiple ways to consider that for fashion. This report specifically deep dive into the consumer sentiments, behaviors, and beliefs about this re-commerce of fashion specifically in the GCC. To the report now, circular fashion potential in the GCC. It's a first of its kind in the region here. Um, Shalhoub Group, again, being uh, one of those to, 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 to do things first in an industry as well, why do the report? What was the sort of demand out there for the report? 
just for maybe our listeners, uh, as our group, Shalhou Group, is the luxury retail partner for all fashion, beauty, art de vivre for many years, almost 70 years now. And as such, accordingly, we do our best to ensure supporting strategies of the global brands in yeah. the region and supporting local brands. So we do these reports in general. This is not the first report and just the first on circularity and circular fashion. Uh, and the objectives of the reports is always to really deep dive into the consumer knowledge, their behaviors, and to support our businesses and the brands to drive their strategies. Because sometimes global strategies don't work in the region, so we must always be very, very local. And the circularity report was actually, uh, you know, just about time to, to publish something like that because we've been talking about sustainability for a very long time. Um, in our group, it's been since 2009 that we started embarking on this journey. But the fact which is the consumer side of circularity was still an area we needed to really better understand to drive the, the business strategies for the future. What about the industry as it stands at the moment? I think a lot of perceptions out there, and they might be ill-considered conceptions, were well, that you know everyone in Dubai, everyone in the UU, everyone in the GCC just wants new, new, new. They want luxury, luxury, luxury. Where are we at with sort of pre-loved items at the moment? How much of the GCC is, is, is using or consuming pre-loved? Look, I think before we get to the GCC, it's important to understand the context at a global level. Fashion in general as an industry is, uh, you know, I want to say harmful for the environment. So it is the second uh, emitter of greenhouse gas emission, around actually 10%, uh, sorry, for the, of the global greenhouse gas emissions. It's the second user of global water supplies as mm. well as the whole global ecosystem. Now, when it comes to uh, the GCC, this research was done with uh, 1,300 consumers from UAE, KSA, Qatar, and Kuwait to represent a sample of Arabs, locals, Arab expats, and international expats. And they were asked if they are willing to buy pre-loved items or sell, and how do they engage online, and what categories do they, um, you know, Uh, buy most if it's uh, circular or pre-loved. So uh, one third of them actually said that they just bought um, a, a pre-loved item or an item that was uh, you know, used before. And one third of them are intending to actually uh, do that in the near future. Mostly the uh, majority of them, of course, invest in bags and then watches and jewelry. It's an extraordinary number because it's, it's a high number already. So we're starting at a high base. So from the figures that you found from the report and your findings, what's the potential for this sort of circular industry, for the re-commerce industry here? So the whole re-commerce uh, in general beyond fashion is estimated at uh, around 11 billion in the region. Now here, as you said, it's 500 million and it's estimated to grow 10 to 15% for luxury fashion is 500 million and estimated to grow 15, 10 to 15% uh, year on year to reach 780 by 2026. How do you, uh, as one of the most respected uh, luxury retail providers and groups in the region, how do you help convince more, that next third of GCC residents, to embrace pre-loved? This is a great question because it's, it's a huge responsibility. Hmm. And I tell you, I always use this example, but I'm, I'm a nutritionist. And when I started working in corporate almost you know, 17 years ago, everyone thought baby fat is cute. No one understood what uh, you know, sugar salt does to you and so on. And nevertheless, companies must play a role to educate and take consumers on the journey. So at one, on one side, you have to answer the consumer's request, but you can't say if they don't care, 
that it's fine, we don't do it. Mm. So number one is you must walk the talk. You have to embrace sustainability. Like we have a commitment to net zero by 2040 and we are on this track. So we must first show that we are really doing it. And then we must invest in education. And most importantly, which is part of the actions as outcomes of this report, is to ensure that the ecosystem and the foundations are available and scaled up. For example, to have the right supply chains, to have the right authenticity of the product, to ensure that our luxury trusted brands are offering these um, services of buyback or pre-loved, for example, um, to consumers or rental options or refillable options, for example, for uh, some of the brands like L'Occitane. So this is partly that we have to do it to make it available. And the second part is to um, educate and invest in, in the education and awareness of not only to uh, you know use or buy uh, uh, or engage mm. in e-commerce, but to understand the importance of acting and being part of the solution. That was going to be my next question about ethical consumption, because we're seeing evidence that when it comes to high street retail uh, and people going into fast fashion, people are being more conscious of what's on the label. They're reading the label more carefully. They are uh, buying more ethically. Is that still the case as well when it comes to luxury retail? Uh, certainly, I think the uh, in general, the luxury consumer uh, has the mindset of longevity of the item. Yeah. It's about the craftsmanship. It's about the value of the product. It's like a piece of art, right? Yeah. So um, for many years, luxury has always been that kind of less is more. Like you invest, instead of paying a certain amount X for 10 items, you pay one for one item that lasts you 10 years. And this is the mindset in general for luxury. Now we're trying to... Uh, of course, luxury brands in general are investing seriously in sustainability from their raw material all the way to the end product and the life after the production. So certainly as a luxury consumer, this is the mindset to the to invest in luxury because it is longer term and it has a life after you use it as well and yeah. you can repurpose it. Um, but more so also it's the younger generation that is uh, more and more aware now. And I think they're the ones asking all these questions, what you just mentioned now. Really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks so much indeed for your time this morning. Thanks also for the report. Lynn Al-Khatib is the VP of Communications at Shalou Group. Their circularity report is out. Thank you. Thank you. Just the highlights. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast. And now we're speaking to a man about a tower. Bugatti Holding, the people behind the Bugatti Tower, and indeed one of our most popular interviews this year, is bringing a new car brand, a new mark, into the property game here, Mercedes-Benz. We're very pleased to be speaking to Bugatti Holding CEO, Mohammed Bugatti. Thanks so much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what makes a building a Mercedes-Benz building? Uh, that's a good question. I think uh, many, many things uh, define uh, Mercedes building today. And uh, we're, we're proud and, and happy to present Mercedes-Benz places uh, being added to the Dubai market. So we're discussing the design of this tower. Tell me what it's supposed to represent. Uh, yes, so Mercedes-Benz places uh, uh, Bengati. This is the first uh, Mercedes-branded uh, real estate being presented worldwide, and uh, for us, what it stands for is, uh, you know, the slogan of the project is uh, "Discover Sensual Purity," 
uh, and intelligent homes. And so for us, this is to, uh, destined to stand for uh, homes that come from tomorrow, from the future. And the future is very much synonymous with the Mercedes-Benz brand. Mercedes-Benz have been consistently delivering uh, uh, the future and, and, and products that come from the future in the automotive industry for uh, almost 137 years. So for us, uh, we wanted to bring in this philosophy and this understanding to uh, the real estate uh, sector as a whole. What do you mean by intelligent buildings? What's smart about this one? So, uh, again, it's not one single technology. It's, it's, it's many technologies. Uh, it also uh, pertains to technology that uh, plays, uh, and, and it's quite strategic that I mention this now, I think uh, very relevant uh, as we have uh, COP28 happening in the United Arab Emirates right now, uh, sustainability and technology that pertains to s sustainability. So uh, to give you an example, the entire uh, facade of the tower from the uh, back elevation is uh, conceived of photovoltaic technology and is able to generate energy that is able to feed uh, all the electrical vehicles uh, that will be uh, in, inside the tower. So uh, a lot of new technology being introduced into this tower, uh, a lot of uh, play on sustainability, on uh, renewable energy uh, methodologies. One of the things that we loved when we spoke to you about the Bugatti Tower, was the elevator that was going to take your car up to the apartment. Is it the same deal here? So uh, this one doesn't have an elevator that takes cars up. Uh, th this one is, is more of a boutique development. Uh, it's, uh, it's smaller in size, so much more exclusive in terms of number of units, I would say. Uh, the, this one is located in downtown Dubai. Uh, and the idea here is more about uh, mobility as uh, an overall concept and more about uh, infusing technology into real estate that re really hasn't been brought to the industry uh, thus far. How many charging stations will you have for e-vehicles in here? That's a good question. So d details of that haven't been uh, released to public. I'm not at liberty to release such details uh, as of yet, uh, but uh, we will be very soon releasing uh, very detailed information on that. Well, the one thing we do want to know, of course, Mohammed, like last time we spoke to you, uh, give us the penthouse price. What will you pay to be at the top of this tower? So, uh, again, we haven't released any uh, definitive details, but I, I, will, I won't leave you on a cliffhanger on that one. So uh, the penthouse will be priced at uh, circa 200 million dirhams. Um, just in terms of this latest announcement, and congratulations to you and all the team at Bengati Holding, is this evidence of the fact, and we saw earlier on this year, didn't we, a report out from property advisor Savile suggesting that Dubai was leading from the front when it came to branded residences. Why is it that buyers are so attracted to branded residences here? Well, I think there's two main reasons that come to mind when it comes to branded real estate in Dubai. Uh, one is, uh, you know, D Dubai is leading uh, in terms of uh, the, the providing a viable alternative as a market, as a real estate market. A lot of people are looking at Dubai as a real estate market. You know, Dubai, the, the market has consistently uh, proved to be a viable investment option, to be a safe haven. Uh, we've seen the, the yields in the market. You know, they've been solid yields, uh, often uh, double-digit yields in the Dubai real estate market. And uh, we've seen capital gains on the prices per square foot. 
so I think going back to the reasons, you know, one is a very investment driven uh, reason. And when it comes to branded real estate, a lot of these brands, uh, you know, open up uh, to a much uh, bigger audience. So a lot of people resonate with these brands, you know, a brand like Mercedes-Benz has existed for almost 137 years. And, uh, you know, seldom do you find anyone who doesn't know what a Mercedes-Benz is. Uh, regardless if we're talking people who are interested in the automotive industry or who who, who, uh, don't really know much about it. So the brand value Mm. of uh, of these brands is uh, absolutely phenomenal. And to be able to bring such brands uh, really opens up a plethora of opportunities for us as developers in Dubai. So I think that's one very interesting aspect. The other is, of course, Dubai as a luxury destination. So we've definitely seen that Dubai as a, a destination has really risen uh, in, in the past few years. And, and that's what makes uh, something like branded real estate very hot in Dubai at the moment. There you go. Mohammed Bengetti is the CEO of Bengetti Holdings, speaking to us about the new tower, the new property that they are putting together uh, with the guys at Mercedes-Benz. This is the Bite Size Business Breakfast, exclusively on DubaiEye1038.com. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.